global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by CBOE VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with CBOE VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures and learn more at cboe.com slash powerful outcomes VIX. U.S. stocks are rising as bank and energy shares led an early climb with higher oil prices, adding to gains after the S&P 500 posted its best week since November. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 up 1.3 percent or 24 points to 1942. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.2% or 195 points to 16,588. The Nasdaq up 1.2% or 56 points to 4560. 10-year Treasury down 5.30 seconds. The yield 1.76%. Yield on the two-year 0.76%. NYMEX crude oil up 6.8% or $2.02 to $31.66 a barrel. COMEX gold down 1.7% or $20.30 to 12.1040 an ounce. The euro $1.1018, the yen 113.20. Lumber liquidators is down about 22% a day. Its flooring tested for formaldehyde was found to have a three times higher risk of causing cancer than previously stated, U.S. regulators said in reversing their own finding from earlier this month. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. Scott Mather is Chief Investment Officer uh, for Core Strategies at PIMCO. He's an old friend of the program. Everybody uh, knows him. And, uh, Scott, uh, the timing is perfect to have you on, given the issues that are out there right now. Um, following on, I, I, we want to talk to you about negative interest rates, and but following on what Lisa Abramowitz was just saying and the concerns in the markets about uh, not just negative rates but financials and liquidity, uh, let me ask you, um, how bad are things? Her, her views seem to be that things are pretty bad because nobody knows nothing, as the old saying goes. <laughs> well, good morning. Yes, it's, uh, you know, certainly I think this this sort of environment, the uncertainties have increased because of policies like negative interest rate policy. Some things that people assumed could never happen, you know, are happening in financial markets. And so there is a, a greater degree of uncertainty. And combined with the regulatory backdrop that has kind of uh, reduced liquidity across the board, uh, there are sort of, you know, choppy markets and choppy price action. But, you know, for instance, in the bond market, we, you know, we still observe that there's a tremendous amount of uh, transactional activity. I mean, we're still, you know, humming along. Look at investment-grade corporate issuance, uh, still humming along at near you know, record, a record pace of activity, large amounts of, uh, of bonds coming to market every week. So, I, you know, the nature of the markets has changed, uh, but in uh, in people sort of perceive that there's different uh, ways that markets function uh, versus uh, the way they functioned in the past. Uh, but we don't think there's uh, anything like sort of a, a systemic uh, issue with you, with the way volatility is uh, you know, impacting markets at this point. You feel like you can sell what you may want to sell or need to sell these days. And if things go south, you'll still be able to do that? Yeah, we just we describe it as a as a different sort of market. It's no longer the market when where you can um, you know pick up the phone or or hit the buy or sell button uh, in many different sectors uh, in the way that you used to uh, because uh, counterparties aren't providing the balance sheet to conduct business that way. Uh, so it just means it takes more time uh, to connect a real buyer and a real seller. But uh, there's still plenty of that going on, and and there's new mechanisms for for putting buyers and sellers together that seem to, seem to be functioning fine. 
I, I look, Scott, and I think a lot of the trading desk challenges and junk maybe is not part of the PIMCO um, world. Are you working day-to-day now where we're just in a low-rate environment forever? I mean, what, one of the things Mike and I have seen, and we usually talk to you on Jobs Day when we're on a lather about labor, it's nice just to talk to you about the normal markets. Do you just assume a terminal value means low yields are here to stay? Well, we certainly think that, uh, that low yields are here to stay for, uh, very many years, but, uh, you know, still our forecast that, that interest rates in the U.S. will be slowly normalized and, and out a few years you should expect to see, uh, you know, policy rates close to 2% and you should expect to see, uh, 10-year rates, uh, probably close to 3%. Um, so, you know, we're, we're just right now at the point where because of what other central banks around the world are doing and the spillover effects on the U.S. market, it's prevented uh, U.S. yields from rising. But, you know, if we look at other major central banks in the world, you know, project what the ECB will be doing a year from now, what the Bank of Japan will be doing a year from now, we think that they'll, they'll be done with, uh, with, with easing uh, and will be looking to slowly normalize, uh, you know, at that time. So some of those spillover effects on the U.S. market should begin to dissipate. So... Ne- negative rates aren't going to be something that is uh, the new normal. No, we don't think so. I mean, it's it certainly seemed like over the past um, you know three to six months, there's been a herd of central bankers that have moved in that direction, and and uh, you know as if they've discovered a new tool. And in many ways, they have because it hasn't been used uh, in the way that it's it's being used at, at the moment. Um, but the enthusiasm probably for those for those policies is beginning to wane. Uh, because if you look at what happened when the ECB uh, moved in that direction, what happened uh, more recently when the Bank of Japan moved in that direction, uh, certainly the, I, I don't think they achieved uh, what they were looking to achieve. In fact, you know, we now have tighter financial conditions, uh, and the market was certainly well, disappointed uh, and on both of those moves, either the ECB in, in December or, or Bank of Japan in January. Have those tighter conditions negated rate increases, including uh, we, the one occurred? We would say so. Um, you know, most objective measures, people have different you know, financial condition uh, indices that they put together. We have our own at PIMCO, but there's there's numerous ones available. Uh, they're, they're all indicating that financial conditions globally and in almost every region of the world are tighter than they were just a couple of months ago. Mike, I think this is an incredibly important idea marching to March 16th is the idea of there. Remember all the uproar about a rate increase? I mean, you know, did well, you you aged that day, didn't you? <laughs> Marty Feldstein has a piece in the Wall Street Journal today. I missed uh, that. Uh, that suggests the Fed would be mistaken to back off its forecast for rate increases this year. And it would probably be a mistake, given the economic data we're seeing now, for the Fed not to raise rate on, rates on the 16th, because then it reinforces the market idea that there is now and always will be a Fed put. Well, it's certainly, uh, we would say March is, is probably not very likely at this point because it's, it's likely, given this tightening of financial conditions, that the Federal Reserve will, will sit back and say we need to see more data. Let's see what the, uh, the influence of these tighter conditions is on the real economy. So they may take a pass in March. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we certainly expect that uh, interest rate hikes are back on the table for uh, the remainder of the year, given, given where we're at in the cycle and given where inflation and wages are headed. What's your view on what the tightening we have seen in markets is going to do to the economy, given the fact that when you look at, say, the Chicago Fed uh, 
index, you're not seeing tight conditions. I mean, we're we're still very low, just tighter than they were, as you say, a couple months ago. Yeah, that's right. They, uh, uh, you know, the high frequency data continues to look okay, and a lot of the survey based measures look okay. So, um, you know, if you just look at uh, what our model would say in terms of tightening of financial conditions, how much that would lop off growth, you know, it's about a quarter of a percent. Uh, so whereas, you know, you might have had forecasts of two, two and a half percent growth for this year, uh, if these tighter financial conditions are sustained, uh, you have to reduce that by perhaps up to a quarter point. Scott Mathers, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with PIMCO today as we look at a broader strategy. Mike, I think what yeah. Scott Mathers said there is just profound about the tightening. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot of economists say it, but to hear somebody in the trenches of the bond market talking about just flat-out tightenings occurred. And then there's this presumption, almost discrete and separate from it, of presumed rate increases. Is bizarre the right word? Well, I don't think the market's presuming any rate increases at this point, which is probably a, I mean, maybe Marty Feldstein goes too far, but uh, at this point, uh, the markets may have gone too far in in believing nothing happening. When you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP now report, um, granted it it continuously moves as the data come in, but the data so far are suggesting around 2.7 percent growth in the first quarter, which is going to get people's attention. And as you've been noting, inflation is out there. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's. As I had the Cleveland Fed chart up today. I'm not sure we even used it on TV. We'll bring that out to you yeah. on social. But it's it's edging up, Mike. There's no other way to put it. Here's a bit of news. Stanley Druckenmiller, um, I guess he runs his own fund now, but of course he used to run Duquesne for years, says he is going to endorse John Kasich, that uh, Marco Rubio is not the most electable Republican. And that uh, Kasich can win. Kasich uh, had less than 8% of the vote in the South Carolina primary, but uh, Miller says um, the big industrial states in the Midwest yeah. can help put him over the top. Well, there's some political discussion here, and uh, we'll be doing that for you as we go to Super Tuesday. I, I, Mike, did, I, I lined up the, the states of Super Tuesday from Vermont to Texas. It's just wonderfully eclectic, but a real southern bias the five top states, Texas, Georgia, Tennessee, Virginia, Alabama. They're calling it the SEC primary of yeah. the uh, athletic conference. There's a lot of other stuff going on, but it will be really fun uh, to see how some of that ebb and flow uh, goes. We'll try to bring you more of that within our economics, finance, investment, uh, and international relations as we move forward to next uh, Tuesday. We are produced, as always, by YUN, our global technical director, Ken Fellio. The market up a good 200 points, 16, 590. Stay with us all day on Bloomberg Radio.